Let's open our Bibles again to Romans chapter 10, and we want to look at the 15th verse. Romans chapter 10. We are Bible Baptists. Amen. We're Baptists because John was a Baptist, and Jesus was a Baptist, and Paul was a Baptist, and Peter was a Baptist, and we know that because they were all baptized by John the Baptist, and if you're baptized by a Baptist, then you're a Baptist. It's very simple. Jesus called him John Baptist. God called him John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit called him John the Baptist, and that's why he's called a Baptist in your Bibles. So we're Baptists in that sense of the word, that we baptize in the same way that John baptized. We're Bible Baptists because we believe that our religion, our worship, Our faith, our doctrine, our practice, what we do when we come together here and how we live in the world is all dictated by the Bible. Because we believe the Bible to be God's holy word, the traditions of men, the practices of others, the ideas of philosophers, all of it is trash to us. We trust God's word exclusively and only. And so that's why we're Bible Baptists. But there's a verse in the Bible for us Baptists to look at this morning, and I want to continue teaching on it as I began at last Lord's Day. Romans chapter 10 and verse 15, it says, And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things! Exclamation point. How beautiful are the feet of gospel preachers that bring... Good news about peace and bring good news of good things. What I'm trying to do last Sunday, this Sunday, and maybe even next Sunday is to teach you about the purpose of the gospel. Why preach the gospel? We are different than most others on the purpose of the gospel. And I want you established in that. That's why there are preachers. That's why we assemble. That's why there's public preaching. It's to teach. God's people, and this verse today is to teach you about the purpose of the gospel. We're different from others. I don't want to repeat most of what I said last Sunday, but I need to repeat some of it to remind you of where we were last Sunday morning, and for those who didn't hear it. Most people hold that the gospel is preaching about Jesus Christ that has within it a mysterious divine power that is able to save people from hell if they but believe it and make a decision. That's the common doctrine held by most Baptists. We don't hold that doctrine. Amen. We believe that all the power in salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We believe that all the purpose in salvation is in the electing decrees of God Amen. and the predestinating purpose of God before the world began. Right. We believe that the power of regeneration is not in what I'm saying right now, but in the Holy Ghost. Amen. We believe that my purpose is simply to educate, convert, and instruct those elect, thus chosen by God, redeemed by Jesus Christ, and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Right. That's the purpose of the gospel. Amen. I preach not to get people saved from hell. I preach to instruct those that Jesus Christ saved from hell. Amen. And it's a huge difference. Yes, it is. This other doctrine makes men their own saviors. Therefore, 
if you were saved by the influence of some man, when you get to heaven, you'll be wanting to sing, Worthy is the man that led me to the Lord. Because the only difference between you in heaven and others in hell will be the influence of that man. We're going to be in heaven singing the praise to the only man that had any influence on us getting to heaven, and it's the man, Christ Jesus. We want to teach those who've been saved by the man, Christ Jesus, on how he saved them and what they can do for him while they're here in this world and what hope they have after death with their eternal inheritance. That's the preaching of the gospel. Now, I want to prove that to you by looking into the word of God further this morning. It's so easy to look in the Bible and find sound bites. It's so easy to look in the Bible and find words that sound like they're saying that the gospel contains power to save people from hell. It doesn't. The gospel is simply good news. It's information about God's power and wisdom in Jesus Christ in saving souls from hell. So that God gets all the glory. He's never done anything to give any glory to man. He doesn't want man to have one scrap of glory. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Therefore let him that glorieth glory in the Lord, not in man. All the glorying is to be in the Lord. When we look in the Bible, we see that God's sovereignty, God's choice, God's election is taught plainly. They see that too sometimes those that believe a position different than ours. But we also look in the Bible and we see that we're commanded to believe the gospel. We're commanded to believe and to repent of our sins. And they see that also. But they make one decision and we make another. They come at that dilemma in their minds. and it's It's a horrible dilemma to them. They come with at that dilemma and say, we must neutralize this importance and this emphasis on God's sovereignty and election and predestination so that we can properly emphasize men getting saved. We look at the Word of God and we see not a big dilemma, but we see their dilemma, and we say we would never neutralize the sovereignty of God nor the glory of God. In fact, we're going to exalt the glory of God as high as we can, and we will reconcile all other passages of our responsibility to be evidences of eternal life, not conditions for it. Any man that ever believes on Jesus Christ has already been saved by election in eternity, by Christ on the cross, and by the Holy Spirit regenerating him, or he wouldn't believe. His salvation is already complete and secure. He believes it for the comfort of his own soul. The gospel is comfort for our souls of what God has done for us. It is not to do something on behalf of God for us. It's just to tell us what God has already done for us. Now, they're good at doing what I just described in other categories of dilemmas. Let me just quote a few verses to you, parts of verses, and show you that there is a substantial number of verses in the Bible that teach that salvation is by baptism. But you know, no no Baptist ever wants to believe that. They get downright offended if you were to teach that salvation comes by baptism. But listen to what the Bible says. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's what the Bible says. Now that's a nice sound bite. What we believe here is that we're supposed to give the sense of those words, not just use the sound of those words. But let's go with the sound for a few verses. 
He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Except a man be born of water, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. John 3, 5. Acts 2, 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Acts 22 and verse 16. Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Oh, I'm, I'm even getting scared right now. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Know ye not that as many of you as were baptized into Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Jesus Christ have put on Christ. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12. Buried with Him in baptism. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. The like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Eight verses that teach that salvation comes by baptism. Now these same people that don't know how to handle the other dilemma, they look at this dilemma and they know that Jesus Christ must be the Savior from sin. So they take all eight of these verses and they learn to apply a sense to these verses that baptism does not save us from our sins, but it is simply a picture of how Jesus saved us from our sins. They know how to do it when it comes to baptism. Because no Baptist ever wants to be called a Campbellite or a Church of Christ or a baptismal regenerationist. Now all we do is apply the same thing. We come and see in the Word of God that God's sovereign choice in election of, of sinners is taught in the Bible. So we exalt that. And when we run upon verses that appear to be saying by their words that you have to do something in order to get saved from hell to heaven, we understand those verses to be teaching evidence not conditions. And that's how we reconcile the Word of God. We do not neutralize God to exalt man. We neutralize man to exalt God. Amen. Whereby the gospel is simply for evidence of eternal life. And the conditions that appear to be conditions are conditions for evidence. Are conditions for you to know that you're saved. Right. Not for you to get saved. Because getting saved is the work of God and God alone. Amen. Entirely the work of God by grace. Now, last Lord's Day, we had a great time looking at Ephesians chapter 1. And anyone listening to tapes from this message or hearing me this morning here in person and would like to thoroughly consider this, you would want to go through Ephesians chapter 1 from beginning to end and see that salvation is the work of God. Amen. He chose us in Christ before the world began. He predestinated us. Now, I was asked by a father last week to help children understand what it means to predestinate someone. If we pre-anything anyone, that means we did it beforehand. Because the prefix pre means beforehand. To destinate someone is to determine or pick their destiny. When you destinate someone or something, you are picking their destiny, where they're going. Now, there's two destinies for all of men. Heaven or hell. That destiny of heaven or hell was chosen by God before the world began. That's the doctrine of predestination. Because before the world began, that destiny was picked by God. That was spoken twice in Ephesians chapter 1. Because we have been predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. I didn't make up those words. That's Bible. That's what we believe, that's what was often believed, and that's what the apostles taught. 
But no one wants to preach that today because it's not a pretty doctrine. Men don't want to hear that God might make choices in humanity. Well, listen, why are you the height you are? Because of God. Why are you the height you are? Why do you even exist? Did God ask you if you wanted to exist? He made a choice for you to exist and you're going to die whether you want to or not. He doesn't care how tall you wanted to be or how short, how wide, how smart, how attractive, or how anything else. He made all those choices for you because he's a sovereign God. And he made the choice for your eternal destiny also. Just like he did for the angels, which are far more valuable creatures than all of us combined. Every angel by himself is so far exceeds us in power and glory that we cannot, if you, if one appeared in this room, we would fall at his feet as dead and think we had seen God. But God made an eternal choice for all of their destinies also. He preserved the elect angels in righteousness and he cast the other angels down to hell and has reserved them in chains unto everlasting punishment. God makes choices. And God made choices for us, men and women. And it's called predestination. That's picking your destiny beforehand. Twice in Ephesians chapter 1. But today we want to look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. These verses are not taught because men today want to control their own destiny. They don't want others, uh, they don't want a God that would choose their destiny. They want the power. They want the authority. They want the right to do as they please. I want to tell you, if it wasn't for God predestinating some to eternal life, no one would be saved. If you read the Bible and see the nature of man, the nature of man is so corrupt that if it wasn't for God regenerating us by his Holy Spirit, we would never choose him. We would hate him. We would go to our own way. None of us would ever understand or fear God. So no one would ever get to heaven. Right. Because by nature, we're all God haters. That is what the Bible teaches plainly. It's not my subject this morning. Therefore, when we see God's predestination, instead of thinking how unfair that he didn't choose all, we should say, why would he choose any? If I were God, I wouldn't. Why in the world would a God want to reach down into the mess, the morass, the trash of humanity and save some of us rebels who all deserve to go to hell? Why would he do that? Because he wants to display his infinite love and grace to the universe by saving some. And listen, when he wants to display, he doesn't offer his grace because we would all have rejected it. He saves by his right hand. And when he stretches forth his right hand, as my brother prayed just a few minutes ago, no one can resist his hand or say unto him, what are you doing? Romans chapter 8. Everyone knows verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Everyone knows Romans 8. Wouldn't you say that Romans 8, 28 is one of those universal verses? They love the comfort of Romans 8.28, but they only like the first half. And we know that all things work together for good. Because everything that happens in their life, they want to run to Romans 8.28 and lay hold of the first half of the verse because it tells them that though there are bad circumstances going on in their life, all things work together for good to them that love God. But I want to tell you there's another half to this verse. 
And it's the half that introduces the last 11 verses of this chapter. Amen. And that half says, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Amen. That Romans 8.28 that men love so much because it comforts them in their troubles. That same verse says that the ones that all things work together for good are those that have been called or appointed according to the purpose of God. Amen. The word call in the Bible is appointment. It's not that somebody is speaking. It's not that someone is asking and you're responding. Is a man called to the ministry? How do you know if a man's, what is the call to the ministry? It's the appointment to the ministry. Right. In, in the Bible, when you're called, you're appointed. And what this verse is introducing in the last part of verse 28 is to them who are the called according to his purpose. Some men have been appointed according to the purpose of God. Amen. And we're about to read that purpose Amen. and what that appointment was. Romans 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did, there's that word again, Amen. predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God wanted the Lord Jesus Christ to be the firstborn, the high one, the preeminent one among many brethren. And so God has predestinated, determined beforehand the destiny of some men to be the brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if they're the brothers of the Son of God, then they themselves must be the sons of God. So we have predestination to the adoption of sons. And lo and behold, those are exactly the words from Ephesians chapter 1. Predestinated to be the sons of God. For whom he did foreknow. Many people will look at those words. And they'll take the word foreknow and say, See, God looked down from heaven and he saw all those that were going to obey him and he predestinated them. Well, that, that would be post-destination because he would be destinating after he saw something. Right. But it's called predestination. And it doesn't say what he foreknew. It says whom he foreknew. Right. These were individuals that God knew before he ever created the heavens and the earth. Amen. For whom? He did foreknow. That foreknowledge there is the choice of love. God loving His people before He ever created them. Remember, in the last day, Jesus Christ is going to say to many, I never knew you. That's the God of the Bible. That is the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible. You don't have to wonder whether you should call Him Lord when you read passages like that. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. I never knew you. But there are others that he foreknew. What a difference. And who made the difference? Well, we weren't around because it was before the world began. For whom he did foreknow, those that he chose in Christ, God did. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, not only did he predestinate them, moreover whom he did predestinate them, he also called were appointed to be the sons of God. And whom he called, them he also justified, were made righteous with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. That is a chain that cannot be broken. It begins before the world began with God's foreknowledge of certain men and women that he was going to save, and it ends up with glorification in heaven, and all of it is the work of God. Because it's a chain that you cannot break. For whom he did foreknow, 
He did predestinate. That means the same number that were foreknown, that same number is predestinated. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Every single one that was predestinated was also called or appointed to salvation. Moreover, every single one that was called or appointed to salvation was justified by the death of Christ. And everyone that was justified by the death of Christ was glorified. God is able to speak in verb tenses that do not make sense to our understanding of time because God is able to call those things which be not as though they were. Romans chapter 4 and verse 17. And right here he says we're already glorified because the purpose of God. He works all things according to his own purpose. And when God works, who's going to stop his right arm or say unto him, what doest thou? As far as God's concerned, we're already glorified because it's that sure. Praise his name. That's Romans 8.30. Verse 31, here's how we should respond. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, is there any wonder about praise ye the Lord in Psalm 146? Why wouldn't you want to praise the Lord when he's done all this for you? Amen. What shall we then say? Shall we say, why didn't you save them all? Nope. Why didn't you foreknow them all? Nope. No, we should say, if God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. Hallelujah. I'm saved by the power of God. And we rejoice in it. If God be for us, who can be against us? Listen to this in verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now some will read that verse and look in there and think that Jesus died for everyone. If Jesus died for everyone, then his death was a failure. If Jesus died for everyone, then all men will be saved. Because this verse says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not, with him, freely give us all things? If Jesus Christ died for all men without exception, then all men without exception are going to be freely given all things, because it is impossible for God to give the greatest gift for all, and not to give every other spiritual gift that is attached to Jesus Christ. Is that plain from Romans 8.32? Amen. But who is the us all? Well, I would, I would guess. Doesn't it make sense to you that it's the writer of this epistle and those to whom he is writing? Amen. Wouldn't you say that if you're writing a letter and you say us, if you write a letter to someone and say us, isn't the us being a plural pronoun, you the writer and the reader? Amen. What is it in Romans? It's Paul the writer and the Romans the readers. And who are these Romans? Well, according to... Thank you. In Romans chapter 1, it says they're saints. Amen. They're the saints. In fact, these saints had already had so much faith, it says in Romans chapter 1 that their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. Amen. And so you know what we can say this morning? Here's what I can say to you this morning. You're the hearers. I'm the speaker. To, together, that's a plural pronoun. That's a plural set of no, a noun. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That's you. And that's me. How shall he not with him also freely give us? That's you and that's me. All things. Praise his name. Praise his name. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? What conditions do you want to put on God's elect? What sins do you want to leave? You know, I've heard this. 
I've heard that Jesus Christ died for all the sins of all men except the sin of unbelief. Therefore, it's the sin of unbelief that sends a soul to hell. Well, that means you're laying the sin of unbelief to the charge of God's elect. I read here, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. There is nothing that can be laid to the charge of God's elect. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, not only did he die, but yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. What is that us? All of humanity? Or is it Paul the writer and the Romans the readers? Amen. It's that us. And we can apply that because we're the church of God, called to be saints, just like the Romans were. Okay, let me, use, let me jump right now. I'm jumping a little track to a rabbit. Called to be saints, Romans chapter 1. Called to be saints doesn't mean asked to be saints. Right. Called to be saints means appointed to be saints. Right. If you want to get over some confusion about the word call, and it's been misused many times in the New Testament, it means appointed. Just go run every, def- every use of the word call in the New Testament and find its context and see what word best replaces it and what the scriptures replace it with in comparable passages. And you'll find out that to be called means to be appointed because those Roman saints were appointed to be such. They weren't asked to be such. God made them saints. Praise his holy name. It's all of grace. Back to verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? Christ died and, yes, is living at the right hand of God to make intercession for us. Do you think a single one of those that Jesus Christ died for could ever be lost? He ever liveth to make intercession for them. Not a chance. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can we be separated from the love of Christ? Impossible. 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 Shall tribulation? No. Or distress? No. Or persecution? Not a chance. Or famine? Never. Or nakedness? No. Or peril or sword? No. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And here's what Paul said, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I ask you again, the plural pronoun in that last part of that chapter, who is it? Is it all of humanity, or is it Paul the writer and the Romans the readers? Amen. Right. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I, as a gospel preacher, ordained by the Apostle Paul through a chain of ministers, going back to the Apostles, tells you that that us is you and me. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But I want to tell you that the wicked in that great day will be told by that holy Lord Jesus Christ, I never knew you. And that no there is not omniscience, because God knows everything about the, the, the wicked. God knows every detail about the wicked. But when he says, I never knew you, he is saying, I never loved you. Right. It's exactly what he's saying. But there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. What a difference. Amen. The difference is infinite. It's indescribable. I cannot tell you about it this morning. Amen. Except to read these verses and try to tell you and hope that God by his Holy Spirit will cause your souls to understand that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Now, we're talking about preaching the gospel. And the point that we're making right now is that salvation is absolutely secure, guaranteed in a certain thing for all of God's elect by the work of God. Amen. Therefore, the gospel must be outside that work of salvation. The gospel must be the good news of what God has done for you. And I'm telling you about it right now. I am telling you good news about what God 
has done for you by his choice to save your souls and to get, and to set his love upon you, which love you can never be separated from. That is good news. Amen. Because no one preaches about sin anymore and condemnation and a literal burning hell. You don't appreciate that news as much as you would if we had grown up in a society where the Bible was preached. Right. Everybody that's meet, most everyone that's worshiping today is just there to have a good time. It's a social gathering. They're not preaching sin, death, condemnation, and a burning hell. Because if you were to read about those things, hear those things taught, and believe those things, that there is a burning hell waiting for all sinners. This message that I just told you, that God set his love upon you to save you, is precious indeed. Amen. It's why we preach the gospel. It's for you to hear the good tidings of good things. Amen. The gospel of peace. What's the peace? God has made peace between us and his wrath and judgment and justice by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. What a peaceful gospel, a gospel full of peace. Eternal life is not a possibility. It's a guaranteed certainty for the elect. Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6. I wasn't taught this all my life. I was taught the other scheme much of my life. I'm so glad that the gospel of peace and the, the gospel of good news, glad tidings, came to me to show me that God was my Savior and had saved me by his own power and there wasn't a chance that I could be lost. Right. All the years that I heard, all you have to do is make a decision for God and he's going to save you. I knew enough about the Bible to know that that wasn't right. I knew enough about God that there was nothing I could do to make God bend over and write my name in the book of life. When I read Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15, which said that whosoever's name was not found written in the book of life shall be cast into the lake of fire. When I read that verse, I was horrified by that verse Amen. because I knew that there was nothing that I had done that was worthy of the holy God bending over and writing my name in the book of life. But then I heard the good news. The good news was that the book of life hasn't had any additions made to it in over 6,000 years right. because it was written and filled out before the world began. Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8. Yep. That was good news. Amen. Then I didn't have to worry whether I had done enough to get my name written in the book of life. I had to check and see if Jesus Christ had done enough to get me written in the book of life. Amen. And when I heard the gospel, he did enough. Amen. He did more than enough. Look at John chapter 6. Verse 38, this is Jesus speaking. For those of you that have a red letter edition Bible, it's red writing, which means Jesus is speaking here and he's explaining himself about salvation in the Gospel of John. Verse 38, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. God's will was in salvation. Notice your will isn't in verse 38. Verse 39, And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Amen. Jesus Christ will certainly raise up at the last day every single one that God gave him. That was the will of God in salvation, and that was the will of Christ in salvation. Right. Guaranteed and certain. John chapter 10 would say, I lay down my life for the sheep. He didn't lay down his life for the goats. He didn't lay down his life 
for anyone but the sheep. That's stated twice in John chapter 10. Now let's come over to John chapter 1 and let's look at the work of the Holy Spirit of God. We've already seen God the Father. He foreknew us. He predestinated us. He called us. He justified us. He glorified us. Now we've looked at Christ. Jesus said, I came down from heaven to certainly save every single one that God gave me. I shall lose nothing. Right. Well, I present the most glorious Savior in the whole world. Amen. The Savior that tries to save and fails on most, he's a pitiful loser. Amen. Right. You say you're being sacrilegious. No, I'm not talking about the Jesus of the Bible. So how can you be sacrilegious or blasphemous when you're talking about another Jesus? You can't be. Because the Jesus of the Bible said he would not lose a single one. John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. This is a great soundbite. John 1, 12 is a soundbite. But John 1, 12 doesn't end with John 1, 12. It ends with verse 13. Now in John 1, 12, when it says that those that receive him and believe on his name were given power to become the sons of God, when was that power given to them? When they believed, after they believed, or before they believed? When was the power of God given to them that they could become the sons of God? Before. Because it tells us that in verse 13. But no one ever reads verse 13 because the soundbite only includes verse 12. But verse 13 says, which were born. Were born. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When a sinner is born again and becomes a child of God, it is not by the will of his flesh. You do not approach a man in the flesh and say to him, how would you like to be born again and become born in the Spirit? All you have to do is make a decision in your flesh. That would be the will of the flesh. It's not done that way. Because this verse says plainly, which were born to become the sons of God, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The power that was given to change our hearts and give us a holy nature and make us the sons of God by the power of regeneration, the power of being born again was by the power of God that was given to us before we believed. Right. We believe because that happened. Right. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we're looking at the power of the Holy Spirit in regenerating sinners. When we say the word regenerate, that's the word the Bible uses. It means to generate again. It means that a person is born a second time. The first time you're born, all you are is on your way to hell because you're a sinner born to two sinners. The second time you're born, you're born of God. You're on your way to heaven because you're the son of God. Amen. The first time you're the son of Adam. The second time you're the son of God. But the power of that second birth is by the power of the Holy Ghost. John chapter 3 and verse 3 Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And yet, there is a whole system of religion that goes around trying to get sinners to see the kingdom of God in order to make a decision to become a member of the kingdom of God. But, the, but Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the being born again has to come first before he can see anything. Right. That is so simple. It's the whole lesson of the Bible. God saves, and we tell one another about it. By His precious word, the Bible. Look at verse 8. Here's how you're born again. 
The wind bloweth where any man wishes it to blow. The wind bloweth where it listeth. That means where it chooses. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Amen. These are not the exceptional acts of the Holy Spirit of God in regenerating men. This is the standard way right. that men are regenerated. This is the only way they're regenerated. Amen. The Holy Spirit of God moves and operates and, and exercises His power on sinners where He chooses. Right. That's how everyone is born again, John 3, 8. So what have we just looked at? We've just looked at the fact that God foreknew certain ones he was going to save, and he predestinated them, called them, justified them, and glorified them. Jesus Christ said he wouldn't lose a single one of them, and the Holy Spirit of God regenerates them by his will. All of you young people, I want you soundly established in this gospel. This is what we believe in this church. Amen. Right. The gospel of good news, that is that God saves and is worthy of all honor, glory, blessing, and power, and we have nothing but eternal devotion to him. Amen. You are not going to go to heaven and go try to meet anyone to thank them for getting you there, right. except the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He is the glory of that place. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let me lay a, an example of salvation. we got a testimony in the Bible of how salvation works. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm sorry. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is the Apostle Paul's testimony. Do you think Paul was one of God's elect? Amen. Here's what he had to say about how he was saved. Verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Not only did Jesus Christ save Paul, he also made him a minister, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. I do that not to ridicule the Word of God, but to make you think about what the Bible is actually saying. Let's read this again. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Right. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. When he gives his testimony, he ends up with blessing God for what he has done. And he says, I am a pattern to everyone that will ever believe and have eternal life. Which came first? Eternal life? Believing? or God showing mercy in your unbelief. It's so simple. It's so simple. Notice that Paul says he obtained mercy because of his unbelief, because of his ignorance. And he said he's a pattern to everyone that's going to believe on Jesus Christ after him. 
When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because you've been regenerated by the power of God. And you're regenerated because Jesus Christ justified you on the cross. And Jesus Christ justified you on the cross because God set his affection and love on you in eternity and chose you to eternal life and predestinated you to it. Amen. All right. Let's go look at Romans 1 again, as we did last Sunday. Romans chapter 1. We don't use the word gospel in common speech. We don't use, we don't use it anymore. You, don't, you haven't written very many letters unless you were talking about the gospel of Christ where you use the word gospel. It's a word that we're not that familiar with. It's an English word that came from our old English with two words, goad and spell. Goad meaning good and spell meaning to announce or news or information or tidings. So you have good news. That's what the word gospel means. I taught you this last Sunday, but I want our children to know that. The word gospel is from Old English words meaning good spell, good news, good announcement. The word gospel by itself is not a sacrament. Gospel is not something that brings power. Gospel is news about the power of God. Right. So when we look at Romans 1.16, we're learning something by understanding that word gospel. When it says in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. We want to look at that word gospel and understand that we mean good news. For I am not ashamed of the good news of Christ. Paul was not ashamed of the glad tidings, the good news, the fantastic information that he had about Christ. Amen. For it is the power of God. For it is the power of God. And I said all of this last Sunday, but I want all of you children to be grounded in this, and adults, it is a pronoun referring to a noun. It is the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. For the good news is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Amen. When I preach the gospel, I am telling you the good news of God's power in choosing you and saving you so that you would believe. That is what Romans 1.16 is saying. So many love the soundbite of Romans 1.16, but they never look at the context. To whom did Paul want to preach the gospel so badly in Romans chapter 1? He says he wasn't ashamed of it. In verse 15, he says he wants to preach it desperately. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome. Amen. Now why would Paul waste any time preaching to those that were already saints? Why would Paul waste his time preaching the gospel to those who were already known throughout the whole world for their faith? Because that's to whom the gospel is sent. Amen. To those that God has regenerated and they have faith in their hearts by the power of the Holy Ghost in regeneration so that when the gospel comes to them, they hear it, they understand it, they believe it. So as much as I've loved this for so long when the truth was shown to me, I knew Romans 1.16 before I was seven years old. But then, I, I knew the soundbite. I didn't know its context. Right. Its context is verse 15, which says that Paul wanted to preach that gospel to the Romans. He wanted to tell them again the power of God that had changed them from being the rest of those pagans that worship false gods in the city of Rome. Look at verse 17. That's part of the context, too. For therein, in what? God revealed from faith... To faith. Amen. 
The righteousness of God. That's what we all need to get into heaven. We must have the righteousness of God in order to be accepted into heaven. And in the good news, we are told about how we get the righteousness of God. It's by the power of God in Christ. And that righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. The gospel is never preached from faith to non-faith. The gospel has to be preached from faith to faith, or there's no profit. You're wasting your time. Why don't you go preach to a tree? You have to have someone born again first with faith in them. Then you preach to them. They believe it. And the two of you are excited together about the good news of Christ. But Jesus Christ had already saved that person before you ever got there, or your preaching would be of no value. It's revealed from faith to faith. That is why back over in verse 12, Paul had said, he was looking forward to getting together with these Romans that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Paul wanted to preach to believers. Why would you want to preach to an unbeliever? He doesn't like what you're saying. Paul would say, a man that doesn't have faith, I don't want to meet him. Can I prove that with the Bible? Second Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If a man doesn't believe, Paul didn't want to meet him. Paul wanted to meet those that had faith by the operation of God. They were born again, and so they had faith in their new man. All they were waiting for is to hear the good news through their ears from a preacher, and within their hearts they would have that essential faith that God had given them by regeneration that would respond to that message. I believe that. I love that Christ. I love that God. I will serve that Christ and God for the rest of my life. And that kind of a, that kind of a response to the gospel flows from a regenerated heart. Everyone else thinks the gospel is just foolishness. Second Thessalonians chapter three, he says in verse one, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For all men have not faith. Why didn't Paul pray that unreasonable and wicked men might be delivered to us so that they could be saved? Because that wasn't his purpose. Paul's purpose wasn't to have unreasonable and wicked men delivered to him in order to be saved by the gospel. He wanted to find men with faith that were reasonable so that he could preach the gospel to them and they would love it. This this verse isn't very popular either, that Paul would pray to be delivered from men. He didn't want to meet wicked men. He wanted to meet righteous men who feared God, but who hadn't heard the full message of the gospel yet. Remember, remember the situation in the New Testament. We have a whole lot of God's elect that were Jews. They thought that to get to heaven, they had to keep the law of Moses perfectly, always. Now, here here we have one of God's elect. God chose him before the world began. Christ died for him. The Holy Spirit has regenerated him. He has a heart that loves God, wants to please God, wants to serve God, will give his whole life to please God. But all he knows is he's got to keep the law of Moses perfectly in order to go to heaven and to have any righteousness. He's under a horrible bondage. And so along comes the Apostle Paul or the other apostles and preaches a message that the righteousness of God is not by the law of Moses. It's by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary. Amen. And to those people that have a heart, and God opens their eyes and opens their heart, and they, he, they see and they understand, they celebrate Amen. because they've been delivered from that horrible bondage. Nothing has changed. They weren't elected because of it. 
They weren't justified because of it. They weren't regenerated because of it. They just came to a proper understanding of peace. God is already satisfied with me because of what Jesus Christ did. And therefore the law is put away. And I can just trust Christ wholly. He's already taken care of it all. I'm just waiting on him. My eternal life is secure. What a message of peace and of good tidings. Come to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 18 tells us that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish the means of salvation. No, it doesn't say that. It says the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Why isn't that verse read with the sense applied to it instead of just the sound of the words? That verse tells us that the gospel only presents the message of the power of God to those who are already saved. To everyone else, the message of the power of God in salvation is considered to be foolishness. The great dividing difference in the response to the gospel is not how well it's preached. It's not how well the hearer pays attention. It's whether God has made a difference in their heart by regenerating them. It's all of God. It's all of God. We come down to verse 22. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Jews simply want to see miracles. Greeks wanted to hear some enlightened philosophy. Enlightened in their opinion. So what did Paul come along with? Did he come along with signs for the Jews? Did he come along with philosophy for the Greeks? No. It says we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But Paul, if you'd have modified your message a little bit, maybe more Greeks would have believed. They wouldn't have believed the gospel of Christ. Right. Because the only ones that will believe the gospel of Christ are those appointed to salvation. Verse 24. But unto them which are called, but unto them which are called, those that are appointed to salvation, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. When you preach to an assembly of people, there's going to be two responses. One one group of people are going to love that message, rejoice in it, and want to serve the Christ that saved them. The others will mock it, make fun of it, and it'll mean nothing to them. They're proving where they're going, and the first group is proving where they're going. It's how they respond to the gospel. Notice this. To those that are perishing, to those that are lost... Verse 18, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. You can't take a person that's perishing, preach the gospel to him, and make him saved. He has to be saved in order for him to even appreciate the gospel. Because those that are called, verse 24, when they hear the gospel, they see in it that Jesus Christ is the power and wisdom of God. What an incredible thing to think about Jesus Christ. A virgin-born man who is also God, And his power to save and to regenerate, his power of his resurrection from the dead, his power to deliver all of us from the graves in that great day. What an incredible message. Why do, when, when, when we hear the gospel, we rejoice because we see Jesus Christ is the power and wisdom of God. Everyone else thinks it's foolishness or a stumbling block. Verse 23. Come over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It's almost like we have a different Bible. And we don't. We have the same Bible. We just read it all. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to start in verse 14. Here's what Paul thinks about preaching the gospel. Now thanks be unto God. He's always saying that, isn't he? 
Amen. Salvation is, he just seems to always be thanking God for it. Right. You know, even Arminians, when they're in prayer, sound like us. Because when they're in prayer, they're always thanking God for saving their souls. Amen. We just believe it. It's all the difference. Right. They say it, but we believe it. When they're praying for someone to be saved, guess what they always do? They pray for God to save them. Amen. And we believe it. God saves. Amen. Alone, by himself, Amen. without loss, guaranteed, right. certain, not a single one. Amen. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. Now, thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. Amen. Now, most people today, when most ministers today, they'll come back from a trip and they'll say, it wasn't a very successful trip. We didn't triumph in Christ. There weren't very many saved. And see, they're looking to themselves, and they think that somebody might actually be saved by their efforts. I thank God that there's, no, there's going to be no soul in hell or in heaven because of Jonathan Crosby. Amen. The souls that are in heaven are going to be there because of Jesus Christ. He's going to get all the glory, and I'm going to be there at his feet prostrate with, along with, prostrate along with everyone else. But some men will go out, think that they should have got a certain number saved, and they won't, and so they'll come back, and that it will not have been a successful trip. But Paul said he was always successful. Right. Notice what he said. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savour of his knowledge by us in every place. Amen. The savour of his knowledge, the sweet-smelling aroma of the knowledge of God was carried about by the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul brought the message, the good news of the knowledge of God and of salvation in Jesus Christ. Right. And the sweet-smelling aroma of the preaching of that message was manifest, made visible and obvious everywhere Paul went so that he was always successful in preaching the gospel. And here's how he measured success. Amen. For we are unto God a sweet savour of Jesus Christ, we are, when we preach the gospel, a sweet-smelling aroma that comes up into heaven because of the way that we preach Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. Right. To the one, we are the savour of death unto death. When Paul preached to men that were dead in sins and going to hell, they responded accordingly. They didn't care, they rejected it, and they considered it foolishness. And because they did it, they were because they responded that way, they manifested the fact that they were dead. And because of that, a sweet smell came up into heaven before God by preaching Jesus Christ, the most fantastic message the world has ever seen, and men rejecting it. It was proof of their death. And because of that, Paul said, we are victorious and triumphant and successful even when we preach to the dead. Amen. Because all they do is manifest the fact that they are dead. Yep. And the way they're responding to it is death. For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. Verse 15, now 16. To the one we are the savour of death unto death and to the other the savour of life unto life. Amen. One that Jesus Christ has has saved, the Holy Spirit is regenerated, when they hear the preaching of the gospel, you know what they do? Acts chapter 2, men and brethren, what shall we do? Amen. Men and brethren, what shall we do? 
they respond with obedience. Right. They want to obey that Christ. They want to love that Christ and serve that Christ. And that is a sweet smell coming up to God of the great difference He's made by regenerating them. They want to love that Christ. The others want to reject that Christ. It's a sweet smell to God also because Jesus Christ will have the last laugh on all those that reject Him. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. First Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. It is a sweet smell to God in both cases. And who is sufficient for these things? Who can understand and fully handle what I just told you? Not many. For we are not as many. Now listen to this. Right. We believe in context, brethren. Verses aren't stuck together willy-nilly in the Bible. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. But as of sincerity, but as of God and the sight of God, speak we in Christ. If Paul wanted to take some of those dead people and get them to do something, he could have modified his message. And that's what the whole religious world does today. Let's have a Christian rock concert. Let's go to an amusement park and have an amusement day for the young people and see how many can get saved. Let's do everything we can. Let's take the gospel down into the gutter. Let's modify it in every way that we can. Let's not require any holiness from anyone's life. Let's make it as simple as possible to believe. Just a little decision for Jesus and you can be saved. Modify it, water it down, water it down. Corrupt it, pollute it, pervert it until everybody can say that they're saved. That's what, every, that's what re- Christianity is doing today in America. And look at what Paul said right in context of the fact that when he preaches... He is, the, he is a sweet aroma to God in both those that are on their way to hell and those that are on their way to heaven. He right. says, for we are not as many. Even in Paul's day, many were corrupting the word of God. But he said, in sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. He did not modify the message. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen. He said, I was with you in trembling and in fear and in tears and in much weakness. His message was not polished. He was not eloquent. His message was Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he said that your faith would stand in the power of God. Because if we modify the message to get people to accept the message by modifying the message, their faith stands in our modification, not in the power of God. We preach Christ crucified, an ugly, a hard, a doctrinal message. And guess what? Those that have been saved by Jesus Christ will love it. And all all the rest won't. And they're the savour of death unto death in the nostrils of God. Second Corinthians chapter four. Second Corinthians chapter four. Verse one. Why do we preach the gospel? Listen to Paul explain about preaching the gospel. Verse one. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, Paul speaking of himself and the apostles, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. There is no effort on their part to modify the word of God to make the gospel more acceptable to men. They're not dishonest at all. We have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That is gospel preaching. It is not trying to win the lost. It is presenting the truth and making it manifest, making it plain and obvious, 
and commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Because all of the elect will have a conscience that is touched by that message and will believe it and obey it. Let's keep reading. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. How can the gospel help a lost person if it's hid to the lost? I just don't understand this. They love their sound bites, don't they? It's pitiful, isn't it? How can the gospel help a lost person if it's hid to them? The gospel has never helped a lost person. The gospel is for the saved. We've already read all the ver- we've read already not all no, not all the verses, but we've read some of them. But unto them which are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Right. We, re- we see in the gospel the power of God, but we're already saved. But look what it says here. Those that are lost, there is no benefit in the gospel for them. Wow, that is a big difference. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Satan has so clouded, blinded, and deluded the minds of sinners that the gospel can never get to them. Remember, the gospel is good news. So it's total rejection. Even though there is this fantastic message being preached by by the Apostle Paul or any other minister, of a God in heaven that's sovereign, of a God in heaven that set his affection upon men, that sent Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, to die on the cross of Calvary, that sends his Holy Spirit to regenerate men, that has reserved an eternal inheritance in heaven for them, though that message is so glorious and so wonderful, Satan has blinded their minds so that they cannot see it, cannot know it, cannot believe it, and the gospel is hid to them. It's hid to the lost because Satan has the power over their minds. Right. A lost person, an unsaved person, a person that is not born again, a sinner, a wicked person, whatever you want to call them, Satan has control of their mind so that they cannot see the gospel of Christ. He is the God of this world with a little g. Verse 5, But we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The God that said, let there be light, and there was light, has also said, let there be light in your heart, and there was light, so that when the gospel was preached, you could see it. Right. It's not hid. It's wide open to display under the searchlight of God's grace that is in our heart by the commandment of God. The only reason we would ever believe the gospel is because of the commandment of God was issued to our hearts. Let there be light in there. And Satan was thrown out. We have a song that we're going to sing it in just a few minutes. Number 455. We're going to sing it in just a few minutes. The light shined into that prison in which we were held captive by Satan. My chains fell off and you saw the truth because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He commanded that there be light in your hearts. And he doesn't command that light everywhere. He commands that light in the hearts of his elect. And the gospel comes to them in power. They believe it. They see the power and glory and wisdom of Jesus Christ in saving them by himself, completely guaranteed for sure, not a chance of a loss. 
But Paul said we have this treasure. That is a treasure, isn't it? A message like that is a treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Converting someone had nothing to do with Paul. It had everything to do with God. He simply preached this message of Jesus Christ crucified, and those to whom God had commanded there to be light in their souls, they loved it. So that all the power was of God. Paul said, we have this treasure in these earthen vessels. I stutter, I stumble, my grammar isn't correct, I'm scared, I'm frightened, I have tears, I'm in much weakness and in much trembling. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But I preach Christ crucified, and those that believe show the power of God. Amen. Otherwise, they wouldn't have believed. Amen. Turn over to chapter 5. We could look at just about any chapter, but we'll look at chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And with this, I'll close. I just want to show you that salvation is of God, and all that a minister does is bring you the message of that salvation, that he's already completely secured himself. I read in verse 18, and all things are of God. Should we really say that all things are of God? And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? That God has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, what does he mean by the ministry of reconciliation? He's, He's already saying in verse 18 that reconciliation is complete, that God has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Do you think Jesus might have had reference to that on the cross when he said, it is finished? Amen. He had reconciled us to God. Right. But a minister has the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? This is the answer to the question, why preach the gospel? Verse 19, to wit, that means this is what I mean. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. God is happy. God is reconciled. God has not imputed any trespasses to us because of Christ's death. We are holy, pure, and without blame before Him in love. Ephesians chapter 1. We are completely reconciled to God. There is no need on his part. He is completely, nothing can be laid to our charge. Who shall anything to charge of God's elect? Who is he that condemneth? We are completely reconciled by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And a minister comes along with the word of reconciliation. I want to tell you, you're already reconciled to God by the death of Jesus of Nazareth on the cross of Calvary. You be reconciled in your heart. Don't you hold any guilt anymore. Your guilt's been put away. Sin's been put away. Right. You get reconciled to God in your heart and in your soul. Amen. That's the message of the gospel. Amen. I'm not adding a thing to Christ's work. I'm not applying Christ's work to you. I'm telling you about Christ's work so that you can believe it and be excited and praise His holy name Amen. that He's delivered you from your sins. That's the ministry of reconciliation. Right. I'm no helper to Jesus Christ to bring His reconciliation and pour it down your throats or in your ears. All I do is tell you about what He's already done so that you can be reconciled in your heart, believing that all your guilt is put away, and heaven is a sure destination for you. 
That's the word of reconciliation. And how did he reconcile us? Verse 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You're not involved in that transaction whatsoever. That's the covenant transaction of redemption. And by it, we've been reconciled to God. We preach the gospel to tell you, you be reconciled. I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ. The king is reconciled. You be reconciled in your hearts and praise him for having forgiven you all trespasses and all sins. He's at peace. Why don't you be at peace? Right. Amen. Praise his holy name. Amen. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.